Swim check one, two. Bike check one, two. Run check one, two. I think we're ready. Let's try this. Welcome to the Try Beginner's Luck podcast, a podcast where we explore the sport of triathlon from a variety of perspectives to help beginner triathletes on their journey. I am your host, Nishonda Shines. Well, welcome back to another edition of Try Beginner's Luck. It's November, y'all. I have so much to be thankful for, as I know you are too. And so I am really thankful today for the opportunities that I've been afforded to come across so many amazing people. Um, as you recall, last week, I had the interview with Jason West and we learned that we are more connected than we had thought. Like I know some of his family members or who've been married into his family. And it just caused me to think about how we are so more connected than we really think or imagine. And that is such a blessing for so many people, especially in this world of triathlon, because we think like, oh, triathlon is such a big sport, but it's really so small. And when you really like peel back the layers and get to the core, you realize there's more degrees in common with people than there is degrees of separation. Yeah, there are, and there is, and there will continue to be. And today, um, the guest that I have with me, I've actually wanted her to come on my show for a couple of, well, we're only in two years. I was like a couple of years, but technically a couple of years because I think it was in 20, well, maybe not. So 2022, I had the opportunity of emceeing the Hall of Fame Gala. And when I walked in, many of you have probably heard this story, how I was a little bit discombobulated because the original um, MC couldn't come. And I was just supposed to be the person at like the color, you know, just to be a little lively person. So I didn't really know a lot of those people. And then I ended up having to lead the whole thing. So I was like, holy doop, beep, beep, sweating bullets, literally. But I walk in and I walk into two dynamic women who I had never met in person, but had only seen on the Zoom lens. One of those people is the now CEO of USA Triathlon, Victoria Brumfield. And the other one, I'm going to give you some information on her before you find out who that is. What I will say is her smile lights up the room. She is an attorney by trade, but she's also a full-time professor. She's a race director. She's a triathlete as well. And she's a board of directors member for the USA Triathlon Board. And she has served on that board for five years. There was recently an election, but we don't know if she will be serving for this upcoming term, but don't worry, I got you. We will find out some answers. She founded Race El Paso in 2009. Yeah, you're probably figuring out who it is. In 2023, she received the Heart of Race Directors Award for innovation for her work with Mighty Muhair Triathlon. Hmm. If you've been listening, you know that we did a little something with Mighty Muhair when we gave away a race earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me not. 
hold you up any longer. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Gabriela Gallegos to Try Beginner's Luck. Welcome, Gabriela. How you Thank doing? you so much. It is so much fun to be here. I know when we met a couple of years ago, I know you were just kind of getting started and look at how far this has come. It's really a true pleasure to be here. Yeah. I, well, yeah, sort of kind of just getting started with the podcast. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with starting something that role to success or the road of the journey is just not linear. You have your ups, your downs, and you learn so much about who you are as you go through the different challenges that you face, because it really does make you think differently, think broader, and to reassess how you've always done something so that you can get the result that you need. So I know you are very familiar with that. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It never goes exactly the way you expect it's going to. No, but the preparation helps to set you up for a better outcome. Now, had you, if you're unprepared, then it's just like total chaos. But if you're prepared, it's like, you know what? We had a plan of action. We happen to go to our contingency and we have to keep going. And that's, I think that's what makes endurance athletes very special because we don't have or we have a little bit more time to think about things depending on the distance of the race, right? But you have to be able to think critically in real-time situations to determine what the outcome would be of whatever race you're in. Oh, absolutely. You got to figure out how to roll with it and how to not let it kind of mess up your mental game at the same time. And that (laughs) is so true because you're like, I got to stay positive. I got to keep focused, but then I got to figure out the solution. Ah, anyway, let's talk about you. Welcome. Thank you. You do a lot. How do you balance it all? I think some days better than others, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I have learned to say no more in kind of strategic ways that I'm going to like, okay, this is probably not the best fit for me. And sometimes that means putting forward somebody else, which I also love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can actually mean making some really meaningful introductions um, and, and trying to find ways that what you're picking to do with your time is fulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's always been important for for me to make a contribution one way or another and to leave, you know, whatever organization I'm part of a little bit better than it was when I found it. And so finding out how to do that and how to use your, you know, skills, talents, ideas in the ways that enable you to do that has really, I think, been the trick. Mm. Yeah, that the power of no, it's... It's hard. And it took a long time to get to the point where I felt okay kind of making hard choices like that. Yeah. I'm reading this book called Crucial Conversations. And it tells you sort of how to craftly say no while still getting your point across, but also providing a safe atmosphere for others. Right. And so, um, yeah, that no thing is, it's, 
it's especially when dealing with people that you really love and care for, it really can be even more difficult. So I ad- admire your um, gift of learning how to say no and to be able to delegate responsibly. Like kind of like drink responsibly, delegate responsibly. Anyway, anyway, that's don't mind me. We have a lot in common, Gabriella. Um, in 2006, I didn't start triathlon in 2006, but triathlon shaped and changed your life. Let's get right into it to talk about that because as I mentioned in the introduction, you started Race El Paso in 2009, so just three years after. And now you sit on three boards, the, let me see if I can get them right, USA Triathlon Board, the American Triathlon Board, and the World Triathlon Board. Is that correct? That is true. Yes. The America's Triathlon is the Continental Confederation. So yes. Okay. And I'm going to go back to your story, but there was just recently an election for boards for 2024 through 2028. By chance, and I don't want to ask you something that may not be comfortable, will you be one of the upcoming board members? I am very, very happy to say that yes. Um, The announcement just came out. Yes. Uh, Oh my gosh. The announcement came out about an hour ago. Uh, and we had an election. The election was throughout the month of September where, you know, members throughout the country, um, could vote for two. I was up for election for a four-year term and they could vote for, for two of us for the four year. And I'm very excited to be able to continue that work. Um, I don't know if people realize it takes, it takes at least a good year to kind of even wrap your head around the complexities of some of the you know, different things that USA Triathlon does because it touches everyone from, you know, a beginner to an elite and there's everything in between. Mm -hmm. There's programs, there's events, there's uh, just a lot of different components to it. And Mm -hmm. so really understanding how you can help guide and lead and um, push for change and work on strategy without being kind of in the day-to-day weeds because that's not your job you know your job is to kind of be more in the in the strategy space than in the day-to-day operational space and so kind of learning what that looks like and you know what the budgets look like you know all of that kind of stuff actually takes a, a good amount of you know time to get up to speed to be able to jump in with your own ideas mm. Wow. So let's put a pin in that because your own ideas had to come from your experience. So let's go back to that experience in 2006 that changed your life. And then we'll come back to understanding more of the board. And that's just to make sure people listen. So listen, it's all a crafty. Plus, yes, we are recording this in October because if that just came out today is October 20th, but this will not air until November. Um, And I'm okay with saying that, but I think it's so funny because um, I didn't know really who won. And I was like, hey, what's happening with this election? So I have a lot of more things to talk about with the election, but 2006, we are here in that moment. Let's go, Gabriella. Tell us how triathlon changed your life and how you even wanted to try. What caused you to want to try? 
Sure. So I was not athletic growing up. I was not part of team sports. I did, you know, a little gymnastics, a little ballet when I was really young and then, you know, moved a good amount throughout my childhood. And so didn't really have kind of that sort of piece of what I was doing on a regular basis. But, you know, from college onward, I was, I loved going to the gym. I would, you know, work out most days, but it wasn't goal oriented at all. And it wasn't one thing, you know, I'd be like, oh, there's a spin class. I'll try that. Oh, there's a boxing class. I'll try that. You know, so I would kind of just see what interested me at the time and go with it. And I was at the time working for a large law firm in Dallas and was on a business trip and ran into a colleague in the gym. And when we went to breakfast, I was like, oh, so I saw you, you know, on the treadmill, like, that's really cool. And she was like, oh, well, I'm training for a triathlon. And I was like, really? Tell me about it. And she was in our Austin office and she, you know, was training for an Olympic distance triathlon. Um, she schooled me on the fact that there were different distances because although I had heard of triathlon and I knew what it was, I thought long distance only, right? Like in my head, triathlon equals Ironman. And I didn't get the broad range that it could be. So she told me about that. And I went back and then she described the sprint distance. I was like, I bet I could do that. It sounds doable. I don't have a bike. I don't really swim and I don't like to run, but maybe I could do that. And so when I got back, I kind of started looking into it a little bit. I joined a running group, you know, that was like a, you know, train for your first 5k kind of running group. Um, I bought a bike and the guys at the bike shop thought I was nuts because I said I was buying it to be part of a triathlon. They're like, don't you want to cycle first? You know, maybe that's a good start. (laughs) It was kind of a funny conversation, but it went very well. And I showed up at a master swimming class, not getting what that meant. And thankfully the instructor was a triathlete. And so she kind of spent the time asking, what are you getting ready for? When is it? What's your background in swimming? I'm like, well, I'm not going to drown. And I know how to get from one end to the other, but I've never been trained. Like I didn't take part in a swim team. Nobody ever taught me more than the basics. So she was like, okay, well, let's see what we're working with. And in my mind, I was like, I just need to be able to get to like 400 meters without stopping. And that's my goal right now, right? Like that's what I need to do. So that was kind of how I got started. And my first race was a pool sprint triathlon um, right outside of Dallas. And I had one friend who had kind of done them before. And he told me, you know, some of the answer, some of my questions, other things I asked, you know, the swim instructor, um, I wore, you know, a speedo and bought some tri shorts to put on top. And that was what I had and kind of went for it. And I had the most amazing time. It was, I was racing alongside, you know, all ages, uh, all athletic backgrounds. Um, I remember at one point I was like next to a seven-year-old and his dad was yelling like, watch out. She looks like she might be a sprinter. And so the little kid would run a little faster. Um, so I had a really good time, but the biggest thing in my mind was that I wanted to not be last. Right. I'm like, please let me not be last. Like that is currently what I want. And I want to be able to finish it. And so I had a great time. I pushed it. I, you know, got to that finish line. And when I crossed the finish line, I felt this amazing sense of accomplishment. And I was so proud of myself in ways that I don't think you get very often after, you know, maybe you finish college or if you go to grad school after that, like there are these 
moments in life that you have kind of those personal accomplishments that are celebrated and you know that you worked hard and you got yourself there somehow, even if you had help, you know, like it's still, you know, something that you achieved. And I hadn't had that in a while, right? Like once you kind of get into the grind of everyday adult work life, those moments don't feel like they're not quite the same, right? Like it's a little bit different. Even if you have a big win at work, it's a little bit different in, in how you got there, right? Or what that might've looked like because you were likely working with a group of people. Yeah. And so I just felt this immense sense of like, proud of myself, accomplished. It was really transformational and it, I, I was hooked. And so the friend who had kind of, you know, walked me through some of it, we went to brunch, had mimosas, hung out. We were just, you know, I was so excited to be out there with my medal and like my arm with my number on it. And I get home um, and maybe, gosh, an hour later, because results took a while back then. And I get this frantic phone call from him. Get online. You have to check your results. You have to check your results. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I did great. Like, I wasn't last. I'm so excited. And he's like, you won your age group. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, that can't be true. So of course I'm, I'm there looking for them. And indeed I had won my age group. So I spent the next, I think three weeks trying to get that trophy um, because it was just such an important thing to me. Um, and, and of course it was a small community event. And so tracking down who had the awards in his garage and like figuring out what I could go get him became another adventure. Um, but that was my first triathlon experience. It was it was exciting. I felt like the the race felt, you know, doable. Um, I didn't see a whole lot of people who looked like me. I didn't see a whole lot of diversity in there. And so that was certainly notable. But I knew that I enjoyed the experience. And I knew that crossing that finish line was something that I wanted to do again. Mm. It looks like at your first bat at trying, you did try beginner's luck. Completely, completely. I mean, it's it's hilarious because I was actually afraid of running, right? And I am not fast by any stretch in any of these disciplines, uh, but running like freaked me out. I was like, I'm going to get left. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm going to be so embarrassed. Like, I feel like I should be reasonably fit and I'm not going to be able to do it. But you did. And you came out on top in your age group with first overall. Come on, we have this saying that whenever you try beginners, like you always win. But in this case, you just didn't win, but you literally and figuratively won. So kudos to you. And then it just went on from there. I heard you mention um, that you didn't know a lot about triathlons. And when you did, you thought about the brand, which is Ironman. And most people don't realize. And again, this is genius marketing, right? Where you have brand recognition that takes over the dominant aspect of an entity, which is recognizable. Like, okay, when you think about swim, bike, run, you're thinking about Ironman. And so just for clarification, because I know a lot of people are confused and I come against people when I'm meeting them in the streets and they're like, oh yeah, like that big long one, I could never do that. It's a brand. Ironman is a brand who has done an amazing job at marketing that long course. They have a long course and a middle distance, but then there's also the sprint. You have super sprint, sprint, Olympic, middle distance, and then there's a long distance. So there's many different ways to get to triathlon. However, there are brands that have higher recognition and they've done a very good job at doing that. And so kudos to them for that brand marketing where people recognize it, but you can start off with the super sprint or a pool sprint, 
you can do it at any level. Well, and thinking about it as something that has an entry level, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk to folks, everybody gets what a 5K is, right? Because they've seen right. them in town, they've seen fundraisers, they've probably walked one if they haven't run one. And so when I have started talking to people who are not familiar, it'd be like, well, it's like the 5K versus the marathon, right? Like you've got all different distances and it can be a huge challenge to be a short distance triathlete because you've got to go fast, you've got to go hard and you cannot stop until you reach the end. It is still endurance because it's not sprint like, you know, hundred meters, but it is much more attainable even though it is just the same level of challenge. Correct. Yeah. So you heard it here and you hear it all the time and we'll keep repeating it because it's important to know that to Gabriella's point, the 5K is like the sprint. The 10K is literally, you're running those distances after each race. So after the 5K for the sprint, you're doing a 5K. After the Olympic, you're doing a 10K. After the half or middle distance, you're doing a 13.1 mile run. And then after the long course, you're doing a 26.2 mile run. So literally they kind of coincide. So that's a good analogy for that. Yeah, we'll use that more often. Thank you, Gabrielle. Um, You also mentioned that there wasn't, that it was notable that there wasn't a lot of people that look like you. And so I want to know one, how did that make you feel? But I think that also um, caused you to think about how you could make that change. Tell us about that. So it was just outside of Dallas, right? And this was in 2006. So triathlon, you know, was very popular and gaining a lot of ground. But races were significantly more male. Right. So I think at that time it was around 70, 30. I think we've evened out quite a bit since then. Uh, but the other thing, I think I was in some ways a little insulated because I had that one friend that was kind of like racing with me, essentially. So in that way, I kind of felt like I had a touch point, right, to not feel like I was truly, you know, at an event by myself. Um, but when I looked around, it looks like I mean, it looked like work, right? Like it looked like what I was working like I was at a large law firm, you know, in Dallas, Texas, and that's also what work looked like. And so in my mind, I was like, God, every space, like, really? Like, okay, you know, we've got some work to do. And I also think that it is because I was not somebody who grew up athletic. It was something that I could start as an adult. And I felt like And it could be done individually or with people, right? So you kind of have this flexibility with it. And I felt like not everybody grew up athletic, right? Or grew up in team sports. And so this is something that you can pick up. Like I can't just go join a volleyball team because I don't really know how to play, right? And I don't have those skills. Like I didn't, I don't have the basics Mm -hmm. and those basics are really essential. But with swimming, biking and running, you can have those basics and build on them and build on them the rest of your life, right? And, you know, develop more um, better bike handling skills and better swim technique. Like you can keep doing that. Um, so it, it posed a really exciting challenge. So after the first couple of years I did triathlon, mainly I was in, you know, Dallas, I'd go to Austin, you know, for different races. 
Um, I moved back to my hometown, which is El Paso, Texas, which is on the, the US-Mexico border. And it is about 87% Latino. And I, I had been gone probably about 15 years and I saw my city with very different eyes. And when I moved back, I was very worried about who am I gonna find to do this because I just found this thing that I love. And what if there's not a whole lot of this? Are there races? Are there safe places to bike? Are there going to be people to swim with? You know, like, I don't, I don't know because most of the people I grew up with are gone, right? Like they've mm -hmm. all also lived in other places. Um, the other thing that was really striking is that I saw dialysis centers on every corner and I saw a very different version of what an 18 year old would have noticed, mm -hmm. right? I saw higher rates of diabetes and obesity and the consequences of that. And I saw that there weren't really trails that were, you know, accessible to people and throughout town, you know, you could go to Dallas or Austin and go, you know, run around the lake or, you know, go run on one of the, you know, the Katy trail in Dallas. Like there were plenty of places that you could do that. And here that really wasn't the case. And so to me, all of that together was like, there's no reason we don't have this. We are not a small town. And why is this not happening? Um, I was able to connect with a, a, a group of passionate triathletes. So they, they did exist. It was just a much smaller community. And I also saw that the races that were put on locally were very bare bones. So they weren't the sort of thing that you kind of hung out after, got to know people, felt community. It was really like you showed up, you did your 5k, you left. Right. And so I wanted to bring that. Um, and, you know, kind of like you were saying earlier, there's a, often there's naysayers or there's like, oh, that's not, you know, I don't know how that's going to go. I had a lot of that that first year. But the first race, the uh, race El Paso produced was 2010. And it was a sellout crowd, which was just absolutely mind blowing um, with 80% first timers. If you can wrap your head around a race with nobody who knows what they're doing. Oh, wow. So the first time you did the race, you had 80% first timers. So what a fun day for everybody, right? Like, cause we were all learning together. Wow. So it was a game changer when I figured out, I mean, I was getting so many phone calls, right. Of like, what am I supposed to wear? Do I have to bring a friend to watch my bike? Um, do we go to the bathroom to change in between? Like what, how does this work? Right. I mean, very, very basic questions. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> like you kind of hope that most people get the idea of like, what does a transition look like? What do you, you know, all of these things. And I realized I'm like, no, 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 very few people at this race are going to know what they're doing. And the rest of them are going to be like, I don't get it. Right. Like, tell me more. So that was kind of when the idea went from what I want to put on a race to we need to educate and support people to get them ready and prepared, right? Mm -hmm. I did not want people showing up and, you know, not having a tire changing kit and not bringing a helmet and not understanding, you know, the very basics, right? So started out by having a beginner's briefing that I want to say we had about 150 people there. It was mm -hmm. wild. And that literally walked people from, you know, from start to finish. What's this going to look like? What do you need? What, what do you, what can you get away with? Like the basics and then what could, if you wanted a little bit more, what would you want to get? Um, so we did all that. 
And that turned into a series of clinics that we still do before certain races. We do fewer for um, other events that I put on, but more for Mighty Muhead because it um, attracts a lot more beginners. And that might have a, you know, climbing and descending clinic on your bike, right? Somebody who's a new cyclist might not really know how to use their gears effectively. And we want them to feel safe, right? We don't want somebody to be afraid of the uphill or the downhill, right? And so all of that has come into play with what the approach is like so that's uh it's much more of an educational piece than i think and i think a lot of other events have started doing that in more recent mm-hmm. years but that was kind of where that started that started with the very first race with the it, this this could be a disaster and i need to do everything possible to help people know what they're getting themselves into yeah so your beginner briefing which i think is absolutely br- brilliant was that held maybe a couple of weeks before the race? I want to say we had it maybe a month before. Okay. It was at that moment where I was like, oh my God, they're all beginners. <laughs> and, okay. and I am getting the craziest questions of, you know, because think if, imagine being in a community where not only have you never done this before, but you don't know anybody who has. And so you can't ask a friend or family member or find that one person, you know, that you're like, oh yeah, you know, my coworker did that one of those a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't a whole lot of, there were a lot of resources, but I think there was a little bit of, um, you know, kind of just paralysis of, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what to look, I'm going to call her, you know. Mm. That's giving me ideas, but I think I don't know a lot of race directors who have a specific beginner briefing. You know, I was going to ask my question that I was going to ask, which I had to switch it was, so I wonder what did your race briefing look like? Like, you know, the pre-race meeting, Mm -hmm. but by the time they got to the pre-race briefing, they already knew. So they just need to get the basic information about course. If there was any course changes, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Wow. The four, just the thoughtfulness that went into it to see the problem, see the challenge and actually address it for that particular race during your race day, what was what you think one of your major challenges you had to overcome, which allowed you to become like that staple. It was that one thing that was like, okay, if I can get this right, I think I'm onto something to make sure people are safe. They know what they're doing, et cetera. So that first race, that first race was really special, I have to say. Mm -hmm. And I did kind of what I have always done, which is try to assemble the best team I could find and over-prepare. And so my race committee, right? So I brought somebody in, you know, and I, I, thankfully there was a, there was an El Paso Tri Club at the time and it was fledgling and it was um, a number of people who had moved to El Paso from out of town, some that were, you know, military or military spouses. So it kind of had a mix, but it was a large proportion of folks who were not necessarily from the community, right? But kind of were going through for a little while. And so I had gone there to try to find people and, you know, get some advice on where the cycling routes and that kind of stuff. And so I announced at one meeting, like, I am going to be putting on a race. And if anybody would like to help, let me know. And then I kind of started reaching out to specifics. So my safety director was the highest ranking Marine here at the time. My uh, registration captain was an accountant. And my, you know, so kind of truly tried to pull from 
one, people who were already passionate about it, and two, those who I could trust with a specific area. And then honestly, we like, like met to go over every possible thing that could go wrong and how are we going to handle it? And so we had walked through as many scenarios as we could come up with because none of us had ever done this before. Right. So we were truly doing this from scratch and that I think was huge. So the, the preparation and the thinking of all of the contingencies and how's this supposed to work was, was really critical. Um, it's the the belt and suspenders, and then maybe you have another belt on hold. Well, one thing I will say is after working with you and your team this year, I do believe that you do have in terms of one of the best teams, especially in terms of response. Like, it was like, okay, no worries, Mashonda, I'll get you to this person. And you, it was like, you washed your hands of it. And then I dealt with the person who was over registration for the rest of the remaining of the time. and. I think that's just smart. And by nature, it's what you, it's what you do. Like in terms of being an attorney, you have to delegate and, you know, delegate responsibilities to people. And it's just something that you're good at, which has allowed you to transfer that skill into your now business, which is a lesson to all of us. Delegate the responsibilities, especially to things that you, one, aren't good at, and two, that you just don't need to do. Because you need to be focusing on other high-level things. I'm, I'm here for that. It is hard, though, right? It's hard to let go. Yeah, but so I think that's to. often the biggest challenge is the, you know, is it, are they, if, if somebody wants to do something differently, are they doing it differently or better? And is your way better or just not their way? And so trying to pinpoint, you know what, they're, they're doing it like that way also works. And yeah. let's see how that goes. Yeah. And I meant to mention Fund Her Try because Fund Her Try is who uh, is really gearing to get more women to every start line. And I do believe Lynn Maddox did Mighty Muhair. That was her first race. She did. Well, I think so. I don't know if it was her first second. triathlon, but it was her definite. She did it because she yeah. was living um, nearby. And she, I remember that phone call because I was driving and she called to tell me about this idea, which just, I thought was brilliant and exciting. And being an attorney, I was like, do you have your articles of incorporation? Do you have a board? What, how have you, you know, have you registered? Because this is all going to come up if somebody wants to make a donation, right? Like yeah. you're going to need 501c3 status. How's this going to function? And it was a great conversation. She's fantastic. And it has been so exciting to see where that has gone and how many women it has supported um, to register for, for their first race. Oh yeah. So many. And I think Steffi uh, Welsh or Steffi James uh, was the winner, the winner this year that uh, from did her first race this year with Mindy Muhair. So um, kudos to you for just taking an opportunity or seeing an opportunity and maximizing on it. Like in 2006, you're like, Hey, I see this. You move back home and you're looking around and you're like, this looks very different. I, I want to step in and do something. And now you are race El Paso. Like you have what a little bit over six races or is it? We've got six annual races. It's kind six. of, you know, ebb and flowed, you know, depending on the year, but yeah, we're we've been pretty steady at about six annual races. Yeah. And what is that like? And how do you have to 
structure the races to get people to come and market them so that you're not just penetrating the El Paso area? Like, are you marketing and making it more of a family-friendly event? Like, what are the types of events? Or do people come from all over Texas? Like, where do you see your uh, participants coming from and how are they learning about your races? Yeah, so it's, a lot of it depends on the race, right? And I feel like each race has a little bit of a different personality. So Mighty Mujer Triathlon is an all-female race. We've got sprint and super sprint. It is intended to be both beginner-friendly accessible and still challenging to somebody who's experienced. So that one's a lot of fun because you do have very experienced triathletes next to beginners. And so it's it's great. Uh, and that has a very different audience, right? Because that's much more specific. It's women only. At the triathlons, we generally get about 20% from out of town. And sometimes that is a friend who has mentioned it to another friend and they come in and visit family, you know, that sort of thing. So we also attract folks from, you know, Tucson and Albuquerque are about a four hour drive away. Um, and then, and then you have like, you know, random places from throughout the country who are just excited to come try it. And so they come try it and it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's a great community here that has been, you know, built that I'm very, very proud of and excited to have been, you know, part of what made that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but that one's a little bit different than another one, right? So Eagle in the Sun Triathlon is that first race that I produced that just, just had its 14th year um, mm -hmm. in at the end of August. And that has a different per, different personality, right? Um, and it attracts the same thing. It's beginner friendly, but it also attracts very competitive athletes. And there are, you know, challenges put out every year from people, you know, who want to win and who are, you know, pushing each other, you know, to, to do their best. And we've had to change locations over time just because of, you know, development in certain areas that were less developed previously. Road quality was an issue in another area. And so where that race does now, so I closed the border highway. So there is literally a, a highway that is kind of not our main freeway, but a, a second one that is um, right up against the, the US-Mexico border. And so as you're on that bike course, on one side, you see Mexico, on the other side, you see the US. And that has also been really special for a couple of reasons. One, because you can't get that anywhere else. You know, that is a very unique attribute of our community. But the other thing is that we close one side of the freeway, right? And so you cannot have a car come onto that course. Like the exits are closed. So it is truly as safe as you can possibly get with a closed course like that. And that as a race director, it gives me a lot of peace of mind, but I also think it gives athletes the ability to really just see what they can do. And they're not as, um, there's, there's not a lot of turns. I mean, in that sense, it's kind of a straight out and back but it has plenty of space. There is, you can pass, you know, you can go fast, you can get air, like all of that stuff makes it a lot of fun. Mm. That's cool. I wish a lot more places will have closed races. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard as a it race is director. Expensive. It is and expensive. It is hard. Part, yeah. And that's that fine, delicate tension that I know a lot of race directors wrestle with with making the race safe, but then closing off the roads and having to get the permits and paying it. And then the price that they have to offset it to the athlete, because this is already a resource for rich sports. So speaking of that tension, how do you deal with that tension? 
I've got to say it is a constant challenge. And I think most people do not realize the expense, uh, the biggest expense of any race that I've ever put on is traffic control and that's paying the police. Right. And that is more difficult in like areas where there's higher traffic, right? So you're closing more roads or there's a lot more intersections, that sort of thing. Um, it can vary whether you're using police or sheriffs or constables, you know, like all of that. But you have to have uniform police officers closing roads. Like you can't have volunteers. It can't be off duty. And so that is a significant expense. Uh, the traffic control equipment is another piece of that. But by far, it's just the pure staffing of that. Yeah. Um, and you're kind of at the mercy of what they say you need, right? Because a city can be like, well, if you don't want to pay these 40 police that we say you need, we're not going to permit it. So find another venue, right? So it is a very difficult balance. Uh, expenses have gone up significantly after COVID. And that's been for kind of the basic stuff, right? Like the swag, but so has like actual paid staff. So paying police when they have an increase, I'm like, well, that's fantastic. Oh my God, that's going to be a lot more, right? Like if you just got, you know, a 10% raise, that means our costs are about to go up that or more if we're paying any overtime, right? And so it just gets a little bit wild. Um, I, I've been amazed at the number of people who assume that that is just provided by a city, right? And they're like, like, oh, you know, all the race, you're getting rich on this because you had, you know, 500 participants, everybody, that's $50,000. You're like, oh my goodness. Like, let's walk it back a little bit because to close these roads was over 30,000. So let's start there, right? Yeah. And now let's go for everything else. Um, so it's, it's one of the, I think, things that is a potential um, threat that we really need to work hard on finding solutions for because we need to be safe, right? Like that I think is paramount. Like we're not gonna have races if we're having races where they're not well managed and there's traffic coming onto the road and they're dangerous, like that is not okay. But at the same time, we cannot then put money in and not be able to recoup those expenses. You know, so um, so it's it's a very big challenge. I think that's why you see things that are moving outside of the heart of cities because it is so expensive to close things in the middle of a city. It's a little bit easier when you get into outskirts where there's not as much population, maybe the roads aren't as well as, you know, heavily trafficked. That helps a bit. Yeah. You guys have a tough job and I just want to pause and say thank you to you and to all race directors for all you do. Um, I work a lot with Greg Hawkins at Kinetic Multisport and you know, he, he does a lot of things with a smile on his face, but I can, I know sometimes there's really stressors that stress him. And what do race directors do? You know, you're faced against challenges sometimes at every race with keeping people safe and dealing with maybe um, emergency events on the race course. What are some ways that you or other race directors have talked about ways that you guys decompress and how do you manage your stress during that time? So during a race, it's a little bit tough, right? I, I manage a race by trying to be as prepared as possible and doing as much in advance as can humanly be done. Because on race day, you're essentially troubleshooting the entire day. What you're doing is like, I see that's there. I see this is causing a problem. We need to fix that. How do we change it, right? 
So race directors, I'm sure, I know I do, I'm sure all of us do get the question a lot like, oh, are you going to race that event that you're putting on? And I kind of laugh. I'm like, you don't want me 10 miles away when something goes down. It's also not going to work with insurance, right? But just think of it, right? I think they imagine like it's just happening. You're like, no, 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 no. There's still things that might be going wrong. Something as small as rearranging a corner could help everybody after that, right? And make it a little bit more clear. Um, rearranging where you have your volunteers and needing to deal with the fact that 30 didn't show up or you know something along those lines. So those sorts of things I think are, are constant. After the race, then it's kind of like, give yourself a breather. It can be really, really tough because I think in the moment, pretty focused, you know, different people handle it differently. I think I'm actually calmest on race day and most, I think like nervous or like frustrated or, you know, the day before, because I want the setup to be as complete and as done as it possibly can by the time anybody shows up the next day. But decompressing during the race, I think would be a little hard. It, during the race, but hydrated. I'm just saying like- I'm going to say that. You try to stay yeah. hydrated. You're yeah. not going to stay like, you know, relaxed. Yeah. But some people, even though they may be fluttering inside, have a very relaxed demeanor. And so they look calm all the time. And maybe that's what I was trying to get at. And in the moment as, you know, when they teach you in improv, it's like, stay committed to whatever you say and wherever, however it comes out, it does, but you're committed to it. So that's kind of where I Well, you at. kind of got to have the confidence to feel like I've done everything. I've got yeah. everything ready to go. I can handle it and we're good, right? Yeah. Trust your team, trust the people you put into place, you train them well, all of that sort of thing. But the other part of it is you have to remember that people are nervous and they might've had a bad morning and they're not going to be at their best necessarily at, you know, 530 in the morning. And so you kind of got to, you know, take all of that with a grain of salt. And sometimes if somebody's, you know, having a bit of a fit, you're like, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Like, take a minute. Like, I'll be here. If you want to talk in 10 minutes, we're good. Yeah. So you mentioned about uh, people ask you, do you do your own races? And obviously we know the answer is no, but are you still racing? And how do you find time to do what you love with triathlon? So I do something every day, right? So I still train regularly and all of that. I have not raced since before COVID. I will say that. Mm -hmm. And it's for a number of reasons. Some of it is really that my attention and time has shifted. And so, you know, travel has increased. Um, my I, I have been kind of in the, the faculty position at um, UT Health Houston School of Public Health now for about three and a half years. And that you know, learning, uh, that learning curve has been steep because it's, it's not, I didn't come from academia. And so that has been, you know, kind of a challenge in a great way. Uh, but my, that personal goal has not come back yet. I am hoping this 2024 is, you know, I think I've definitely got a few sprints in me for 2024. So that's what I'm looking forward to, but I still, you know, swim, bike or run every day. I love it. I love it. I want to go back to now being a board director, because I think that's important. Um, many, including myself, may not know exactly what being a board director for a governing body means, what it, you do, what's involved, how do you even get on the ballot for it? 
Um, can you talk a little bit, like, how did you come to be on the USA triathlon board and did the other boards as a result of being on the USAT board, is that how you got the opportunities to be on those boards as well? So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So at the heart of this is the Olympic movement, right? And so we've got USA triathlon, which is the, the national governing body for triathlon in the United States. And our USAT is over Olympics and Paralympics, right? So we've got a whole lot of stuff underneath it. As a member of the board of directors, you're really looking at the strategic direction of the organization. So not the day-to-day, can you help me with my membership sort of stuff, but the, where do we want to be in eight years, 10 years, 20 years? How do we grow this sport? How do we bring new people in? What does this look like? And who do we, um, where do we see this going, right? So there's that part. There's the, you know, the very basic fiduciary responsibilities of, you know, being on top of how money is spent and making sure that you're a good steward of of all of that. So there's that as well. Um, But there's a lot of moving parts within USA Triathlon. And I think it is different depending on what your touch points are, right? So if you're a coach, your experience with USAT is going to be a little bit different than if you're a race director, because the education you get looks different. The way that you're working with triathletes looks different. Um, If you have a business versus if you're, you know, just a recreational triathlete, that also is different. But USAT is there to serve all of those different groups and needs to be able to do that in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now tell us a little bit about America's triathlon, which is the Continental Confederation. Can you talk about that as well? Sure. So it has gone through multiple names. So those who have, have been around a while may know it as PATCO, the Pan American Triathlon Confederation, or they may know it as CAMTRI, which was also kind of a a previous name. And it's now America's Triathlon Confederation. And it is Canada all the way down, plus the Caribbean, if that makes sense. So all of the Americas. Uh, So each national federation is a member of the Continental Confederation. So USA Triathlon is a member of America's Triathlon Confederation. And Within that, there's, you know, championships on the elite side, there's events that take place that help elite athletes get points to get into other events or to potentially qualify for the Olympics. So, so there's a, there's a structure there with where that goes. Um, Within America's, we also have very developed triathlon federations like the US, like Canada, like Mexico. And we have very, you know, underdeveloped triathlon federations, right? So you might have a smaller country elsewhere that has a few athletes that they're bringing up, but they don't have a huge community yet. And maybe their organization doesn't have staff, maybe they're all volunteers. So the the level of variability is huge within our, our continent. Um, but there's also a continental confederation in Europe, in Oceania, in um, Africa, and in Asia. So okay. there, there's six. And so I would presume that the board responsibilities are a little bit different for the Americas as there is to USAT board of directors. So can you tell us a little bit of the difference between, you told us what you do for board of directors for the USA Triathlon board, but what are some of the responsibilities for the Americas? Uh, board 
So it's a little bit different because you're thinking on a broader scale, right? And although I, the way that you kind of get to that spot is that you're nominated by your national federation, right? So USA Triathlon put my name forward for a spot on that board. And then there was an election. So there's another election coming up actually next month in, um, in Chile during the Pan Am Games when we have our Continental Confederation Congress. And so that's kind of how you get there. But once you're on, you're not there just to represent USA Triathlon. You are there on behalf of the Continental Confederation. So it's a little bit of a shift, right? And, and you kind of bring the perspective. I feel like I've learned a lot through putting on grassroots races and seeing how you build that from the ground up when I was literally explaining what a triathlon is to everyone from a sponsor to a city council member to, you know, they had to understand what it even was before they would permit it. Right. right. Or before they would sponsor it. So I feel like I take that experience to um, the America's triathlon board as I see different nations developing in different ways. Right. Mm-hmm you have different resources that are available, right? So, you know, although we don't receive um, federal funding per se, we are funded by our members, but we have a large membership, right? Mm -hmm. So that looks different from a small federation that maybe does have support from, you know, their federal government, but that support might only be to get people to the Olympics. It's not Mm -hmm. to get a beginner into the sport. You see what I mean? So it's, there's, there's a lot of different dynamics at play, but we look more at kind of the, the race schedule for those continental cups and championships that, you know, where are they? Are they evenly spaced in different places? Will athletes in, you know, smaller Caribbean island countries have an opportunity to go to this event that's happening in, I don't know, Peru, you know, or wherever it is. So, you know, thinking about some of those things, um, development is a big focus of it. And development is really trying to bring in um, additional athletes who will be able to compete at the Olympic and Paralympic level at some point. I love it. And because you're just such an amazing person, you sit on three high level boards. We can't not allow you to talk about being on the World Triathlon Board, which is the international uh, governing body. So can you talk about that board and the difference between the two? Absolutely. Oh, World Triathlon is very exciting. So it, you kind of think of it as this feeder, right? So USA Triathlon is the national governing body and it is a member of the Continental Confederation of the Americas. And then from there, all of them are also members of World Triathlon. And so that is at this time, I believe we have currently 140 different national federations from around the world who are members of World Triathlon. And World Triathlon does some of the same sorts of things that the Americas does in the in in terms of you know race schedules and you know cups and events and those sorts of things um, for both paratriathlon and triathlon. And it also has a lot of age group races. So if you are a member of Team USA, you have gone to you know the World Championships. That's all under the World Triathlon umbrella as well. So there is age group racing at its finest as well. But beyond that, it's really looking at the policies and the kind of strategic development of the sport. So we are wrestling with, you know, I'm I'm leading a safeguarding working group right now because we see that there's some gaps and some needs for 
understanding what the role of an international federation would be in something that you know, every country might do a little bit differently, right? Like in the US, we now have the Center for Safe Sport following, you know, Larry Nassier, Nasser and what happened with USA Gymnastics that we are all able to be part of to help make sure that, you know, athletes are not subject to abuse and harassment in different ways. Um, so there's that. But what if you are a tiny volunteer run federation in the middle of the Caribbean, right? What resources and infrastructure is there? And if you have it, fantastic. What happens if they're now trying to enter into an international sphere? Or what happens if a coach who was coaching in the US who has kind of been, you know, deemed to be not good to be a coach, then just moves to another country and starts coaching there, mm. right? So where do we find those gaps and how do we make this a this sport safe for everybody and also fair in the ways that we can move forward and understand, um, I guess we're kind of where the jurisdiction lies, right? And what you do next, who do you go to? What rules are there? What are the international versus the domestic ones? All of that kind of stuff. Um, so that's one example, but there's been so many different examples of that. Um, it's, it's strategy at the highest level, right? It's the, it's sports leadership. It all feeds into the Olympics, you know, that we're looking forward to in Paris next summer. Um, so it, it has a lot of different components, but that, that leadership is really exciting. It is made up, the board itself is made up of, I believe, uh, 15 people from across the world. Um, eight are elected as kind of, there's four vice presidents and four um, board members that are kind of general board members. And then the president of each continental confederation has a seat. And there are also two athlete directors that are elected by the athletes. So it is not a large board, but it is a, uh, a very hardworking board with a whole lot of different areas beneath it. Thank you for that. I think that's so important because, you know, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about what the board does and what their roles are and, 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 like, I didn't even know that there was a Amer an Americas triathlon board. So that's, you know, for the Continental, which is very different. So to me, I felt like I learned something today. But I want to go back for USAT and ask this, and you may know the answer, you may not, you may be able to provide uh, opportunities around it for the next year. Um, this year, I felt like the the board, I felt like the board nomination process was really, or not nomination, but the voting process was really cool. Um, but the one thing that was really interesting to me is the bios. Is there a way that when voting comes up again next year or in the whenever there's a rotation around again, that we could maybe have like a town hall so people can hear uh, their voices to see what it is versus seeing on a, because some people are good with written and some people are good with expressing themselves and hearing the passion. And is that an option? Cause I don't know what the parameters are, but I'm just asking for myself because that was important to me. And I was like, huh, I'm reading this, but this looks like a professional bio versus an actual bio for like a triathlon board. And so is that something that could happen? You know, I am not going to say no. Uh, right now, essentially, we follow kind of what the election procedures are in the bylaws. 
I think that's kind of an addition. I don't think that's necessarily a problem, you know, anywhere. Um, the election process has been, I mean, it's tough because very few people end up voting, kind of like the rest of the country, right? Like in national elections. Um, <laughs> I'm, like, like, I'm not bitter, right? Like that's just how it goes. I feel um, like we had to have a little drum beat on that, whatever. Like, I mean, and it can be challenging to do that. The one thing that I worked on, um, I guess it was about two or three years ago, we worked on standard operating procedures for committees, which I think have helped a lot. And then also revised the bylaws to kind of clarify where there was questions. And the committee membership part was another important thing that I helped work on because I wanted it to be open. Right. I wanted like, Mishanda, if you're like, I want to sit on the, you know, I don't know, whatever committee, how do I get on that? The answer should not be, well, do you know so-and-so? Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe if they know you, they'll think of you when they're looking for new committee members. Right. That's not how that should go. Right. And so now there's an open process that if you were interested in in running for something or interested in just joining a committee, which is an appointment, not an election, you can put your name in and raise your hand and say, I really care about this. I want to be part of this, right? Something like the race director committee or the age group committee, or, you know, there's, there's a multitude of committees that need people who are willing to put in their time and their talent. And we want that. And we don't want it to be you know, a closed universe of people who already know each other, right? Kind of mm. talking to each other in in a bubble. And so that has opened up now, which means that for the board of directors election, there were a lot of people who I think raised their hand and were very interested in being part of it, which I think is amazing, right? Yeah. What a great sign that so many people want to be part of the leadership of this organization. Mm-hmm. And we do have a nomination and governance committee and they're the ones who, you know, review, they think about, you know, what does the board need, right? Sometimes it's specific, right? Sometimes it's like, we need people who are in finance because like we need that set of skills that can really shed light on a couple things, right? So sometimes it gets like that, but other times it is, you know, we want people who are passionate, right? And so they have kind of some, you know, bullet points that they're thinking about. And then they do the vetting and the interviewing and recommend who should be on the ballot. So that's kind of a separate process that um, that has like its own circle. No, I I appreciate that. As as we were talking prior, I work for a foundation, and you know when you're coming to talking about board and the board governance, there are certain areas in which you need people that are well-suited to do a particular job because mm-hmm. these roles, whether people think they do a lot or not, are very important and instrumental into the success of an organization. And so um, I love the fact that there is open committees. And I think when you were talking, I was like, man, I think this is another podcast to talk about board specific related things so that people can understand because as the sport grows again knowledge and understanding is one of those key things and maybe they don't take the time to read very dense websites you know or take the time to listen to podcasts but figuring out how to get this information out. I know I took an active process. I went through and read everybody's bio uh, from the, because it was like eight, maybe eight people going after two positions for 
the general body electorate board directors, but there were different positions like there's people for the Paralympic committee and there's just different board opportunities. And so for me, I took the time to read and to understand and to go through, but there was things that I didn't understand. Cause I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. So why would I vote for this person if I don't even understand why they want to run? And so that's why my idea came from maybe like a open forum or a town hall, which could potentially get more engagement from people to vote. Cause they don't, they see this thing populate in their inbox, but they may not know. So I think, thank you. I no, was engaged in the process mm-hmm. and I was like, this is, this is good that the, the way they did the, you know, the voting process, the reminders, everything was good. And I guess maybe I was just more engaged um, as I knew people who were running. And so it, it just made the process that much better. Well, and the committees are also a great way to get involved. So there are multiple committees and they also have, you know, terms. So it's not just a, I want to be on it and everybody's on it, but different skill sets are still needed and different opinions and voices and backgrounds and experience and areas of the country. And, you know, all of that is so important. So what I do hope is that those who raise their hand to be more involved and to run for board of directors are then hopefully invited to do more with the organization in different ways, right? Absolutely. And so for those of you who are listening, because I do know not just those who are interested in the beginning triathlon, but we do have a lot of uh, experienced age groupers that listen to the podcast that you will take a little bit more ownership and to be the change that you want to see in sport, you know, whether that's joining a committee, running for a board director at some point, but start where you can. And a lot of times that could just be volunteering with your local race directors or, you know, and just starting there. And Please volunteer. <laughs> volunteers are needed. Like when you said that when 30 volunteers don't show up, I was like, that resonated because that that's happened, you know, and it affects everybody. So definitely do that. I can talk to you all day long and yes, because you're great to talk to and just full of knowledge but we got to move forward to our rapid fire. But I want to show this picture because when I look back at this picture now, I didn't know Victoria was about to be uh, the president of, um, I didn't know she was about to be the president of the organization. And so our CEO, not president, but CEO of USA Triathlon. And it was wild. So I'm going to show this picture um, try to blow it up really quick. Give me one second. Look at that. Look at those beauties. Hey, hey that's me. That's you. <laughs> and when I saw this, when we took the picture, it was just like, I was just walking in. As you can see, I'm a little uh, flustered, but you guys were such a calming presence. And all I kept thinking was, look at these badass women who are doing the darn thing. And I didn't know much about you all at the time. I had just sat and like we're doing now over Zoom, talking, moderating different panels, whether it was Endurance Exchange or uh, the DEIA summit that we used to have. And I was just like, wow, to get to meet these people in person. Then a couple of months later, I'm like, I was with the president of the well, the CEO, I keep calling her president. Maybe she's going to be the president of something someday. I don't know. But Victoria was just this bubbly personality who was being a boss chick still because she was the chief of staff and just doing things. And so it was an honor to be in this picture or to take this picture. So just wanted to shot. That was great. It was 
there was a power moment. You just send that to me because I don't have that one. I will. I'm like, these are some power women. And so it made me feel like my future in triathlon was bright. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I may have a future or something like that. Um, So yeah, so we do this thing called rapid fire and I'll make sure I send that to you. But we just ask questions and it's fast. Sometimes I ask follow-ups, but for the most part, it's just really fun to get to know you in a different way. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. I guess I should get ready. That screen messed up my whole system. I know you've done every distance from sprint to long course. What is your favorite distance? I'm going to go with sprint. Okay. All right. All right. Um, morning or evening workouts? Oh, morning. All the way. Okay. Taper week, love it or hate it? Hate it. Okay. I've been that. Why do you hate taper week? I want to know. Cause you're the first person who said hate it. So. So I like the training for long distance, but the racing in the short distance, I think is a lot of fun. Right. And you can kind of keep doing them over and over. Right. The other ones I feel like I prepare long for taper week for like a long distance race. I think the idea is that by the time you get to the start line, you're just dying to go. But that like feeling of not being able to go out and do all the things that you want to be doing is just torture. Okay. Oh, just wanted to ask. Um, dream training partner, uh, alive or historical? My God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's tough. I mean, in my dream, can I keep up with them? Perhaps. You can do whatever you want to do. It's your dream. Okay, if I can dream and and keep up with them, I'm going to say Taylor Nib. Come on. That's my girl. Love her. That's a good one. Because she's fast. But I think she'd be a lot of fun. I mean, come on. She was talking to the motorcyclist. Like, it'd be great. Yeah. And yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Um, Race in a big city or scenic countryside? Big city. Okay. Transition, minimalist, Goldilocks, or kitchen sink, bring everything. Minimalist with a bag that has everything still. That. So I like plan for all the extras, but I don't put them out. That's good. If I need it, it's there. That's good. I like that. Um, Swim start, wave start or mass start or time trial you said mass start mass start yeah 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 that's good and second to last favorite music artist common yeah common okay um and do you pee on the bike or get off and take a proper pee break (laughs) You get off. <laughs> you get off. In, in my head, I've never been able to wrap my head around the idea of that because I'm like, you're going to get a rash. Like, that's not going to go well on the run. <laughs> so, so like, my practical nature will not, like, allow me to do that. <laughs> that's good. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have been so honored to be here with Gabriela Gallegos, who is the chief head boss lady at Race El Paso. And she is our new, because you just said a couple, what, an hour or so ago? So now probably two hours because we've been talking for an hour. Um, that you are now newly elected to the 2024 through 2028 race director, no, board of directors for USA Triathlon Board. So congratulations to you, you. clapping it out. That is exciting. And uh, a part of the America's board and the World Triathlon Board. There's great things in your future. I appreciate who you are. Thank you for putting diversity at the front, forefront of all that you do and making um, health movement and changing the way people get to race and do life in El Paso and extending their life. And I appreciate um, what you're doing in that community and what you're doing for women all around the world um, just by being merely who you are. So thank you for coming on the podcast and we hope that you will come back again. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love being here. And you know, that's it for us. Thank you for tuning in. Whenever you try beginner's luck, you always win. I'm Ashonda and we are out. Peace. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. We need your help so we can continue to try at TBL. So for more information on where you can find and subscribe to this podcast, visit www.trybeginnersluck.com. And don't forget, whenever you try beginner's luck, you always win.